Welcome back to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk podcast, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we cover issues important to our Black and Brown communities. So, right, we're back at we're back at the mic. Yes, yes. <laughs> Glad to be here too. Yes, definitely, definitely. You know, recently uh, our group was having a conversation about the corporate effect on the delivery of medical care uh, mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. communities. And our communities are already well stretched from COVID, as you know. Right, uh, right. Doctors are exhausted, nurses are quitting, um, you know, and we just are already stretched with the delivery of healthcare in our communities. And then on top of that, we're adding the fact that um, many hospitals are run by corporate entities now. Right. They're not necessarily mainly concerned about the quality of the healthcare that's being delivered, but the bottom line mm -hmm. of the cost of delivering healthcare. And uh, in some areas like Atlanta, that's causing a problem where Atlanta is now down to one trauma center uh, for the whole amazing. city, which is just crazy. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And, you know, those of us that are older, you know, like we can we can fall back on Medicare. But what about the rest of the country? You know, what exactly. are they up against? Well, so, yeah. uh, Michelle, we think we've got someone on the show this this week that um, may shed a little bit of light uh, on all of the situation. And her name is uh, Tajel High. Tajel is a native of Trinidad and Tobago. And she immigrated to New York City with her family as a young uh, young girl. And she is a product of the New York City public school system. She attended Princeton University, where she earned her bachelor's degree in ecology and evolutionary biology and a certificate in African-American studies in 2000. She also earned her law degree in 2004 at the University of Georgia School of Law. After law school, she stayed in Georgia and focused her practice in the area of health law representing hospital companies, pharmaceutical companies, retail pharmacies, and other healthcare providers. In 2010, Tijel moved to Tennessee, where she transitioned her legal practice to corporate for a large hospital company uh, called Community Health Systems and later LifePoint Health, where she previously served as the Senior Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer. She will join Prime Therapeutic, a multi-billion dollar pharmacy uh, benefit manager and specialty pharmacy company as the VP and chief compliance officer later this month. In her spare time, Tijel volunteers on the board of the American Health Law Association, the largest trade association for professionals that work in the field of health law. She is a founding board member for Opportunity Nashville and One Wilco, both grassroots organizations that focus on creating better education outcomes for children served by the public school system. Uh, Tijel, welcome to our, our podcast. Thank you so much, Raymond, Michelle. So glad to join you. So, um, you know, during uh, the uh, the height of COVID uh, in the in the 2020, 2021, actually, that's how our podcast started, right at the start of, of uh, COVID. Uh, Michelle and I had a lot of uh, doctors and people in the healthcare industry on to talk about COVID and everything and people were being affected by uh, all of the uh, the virus and and uh, especially in our black community how we were sure. reacting to it and what have you so we haven't done uh, a healthcare episode in a while so uh, we're looking forward actually to really think about you know covid has got a new strain going on right now um and everybody has to be vigilant again 
So in particular, how did you get involved in the healthcare industry? How I got involved in healthcare? Well, I come from a family of educators and healthcare providers, some nurses, physicians, teachers, and guidance counselors. Um, I started my career wanting to be a physician and just took a different path. I was really interested in sort of policy and law and how policy and law played a role in healthcare. At the time I was applying to law school, that sort of initial stage of Clinton era healthcare reform was making a lot of news. And I didn't really know what it meant, right, as a, a college senior, but it was very interesting to me to think about how laws were impacting how care was delivered and how care was paid for. So my interest has, you know, always been in sort of getting into the industry. Initially, I thought I would be a provider, you know, performing surgeries and doing and doing it that way. But found out that for me, it was much I was much better suited to be sort of behind the scenes, thinking about law and policy and um, and working through healthcare in that way. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. As a lawyer, how can lawyers impact the delivery of healthcare? Um, in many ways, healthcare is likely the most highly regulated industry, especially in America. Um, banking and healthcare kind of go back and forth as to which is the most regulated. But I think many people don't understand um, sort of how healthcare in the U.S. is really paid for. The vast majority of healthcare services are paid by the government through Medicaid, Medicare, other government-funded services. And so, when you think about the primary payer being the government then regulation follows. Regulation follows in sort of how care can be provided, what kind of care can be paid for, what setting health care can occur in. And then once you start writing a lot of rules, laws, and regulations and starting com the complexity of having federal rules, uh, statutes, and regulation, state law, statute regulations, other guidance, lawyers get very heavily, very heavily involved in interpreting those rules and helping providers and organizations to make sure that they're not running afoul of the regulatory landscape. And then when government enforcers come, that is a, a quite common occurrence in healthcare. Government um, audits their, their payments, their claims, how healthcare is delivered very, very heavily. Um, you're, you're always going to run into situations where Lawyers are helpful in managing those um, reviews and audits, managing disputes between the payers and the the provider that's provided the service um, and in and, and lots of different ways. That's at least the way that I touch it generally is more from the regulatory side. When you think of transactions, I'm sure people are hearing a lot in the news now about how hospitals in particular, those in rural areas and many sort of the urban blighted areas as well are really struggling to stay open. People are buying hospitals, private equity, uh, right? But buying lots of providers. Those transactions are also very highly regulated. So lawyers really touch a lot of different places in the healthcare space, but not obviously touching patients behind the scene, making sure care is delivered properly, making sure the rules are not um, managed incorrectly, and making sure that get all those various transactions that help happen in healthcare space um, happen in a way that is documented well and done in a way that is appropriate for all the various rules we have to follow. So I have a question. How did your role change uh, at the start of the Affordable Care Act? In other words, you know, what kind of responsibilities did you have or, um, or how, how did your work change prior to the Affordable Care Act and once it was enacted? Good question. Um, on a direct, like one-to-one -one space, it didn't change very, very much. The Affordable Care Act, what that really did was make healthcare more accessible to a lot of people by providing some different avenues for people to access healthcare, either by expanding Medicaid 
or making the, you know, those um, free access systems that individuals can just opt into to get their own insurance. So from my perspective, and so that that's like the main thing, there are lots of other tag along laws, including rules that prevented fraud and other things. But the healthcare regulatory system is so complicated. There's so many rules that are impacting fraud already. Adding another one doesn't necessarily change the way that I look at it directly on a macro level. It may more on an individualized issue if I were working through a specific um, a specific area and say, you know, the, the agency that was looking at it was one that was governing it under the ACA, then maybe I would dig into those rules more specifically. But that fraud landscape compared to the fraud landscape in the False Claims Act or the Stark Law, they're they're similar so that I'm trying to make sure as a sort of looking at our operations more globally to make sure we're following some basic principles and how we can um, how we can do business. So I can't say it, it, it impacted my work necessarily so dramatically. There are definitely some lawyers that sort of were more focused in that space, either from a beneficiary perspective, making sure beneficiaries were getting access to the, you know, the benefits that they now had access to, or perhaps, um, you know, providers trying to figure out, okay, if I want to now take part in these different programs that are available, how do I do it? But that wasn't necessarily the way I experienced it. From a you know more of a, a larger scale healthcare organization, it was it was good because that meant that more people coming to hospitals, especially through emergency rooms and other places, would now have a source of funding attached to them, so that the care that was being provided to them was now not going to be at a, a negative loss. There would be some dollars recouped for providing those services. So for large systems in general across the country, whether you're urban or rural. Uh, the ACA was a, was a good thing, regardless of what the politicians say about it. From a healthcare perspective, or from a people perspective, getting more access to care was a, was a very good thing. And for the providers providing the care, being able to again recoup some money if it didn't even cover your full cost, recouping something was better than than taking a loss. So, so that raises some interesting questions um, in the post-COVID environment because mm -hmm. uh, certain medical benefits were extended right, uh, through COVID and gave a broader range of coverage or, or covered more people, I guess is the correct way to uh, put it. And now those extensions have ended. So do you see some uh, impact uh, at the level of healthcare you're working at uh, with those, uh, with the termination of the extension of those benefits? There will be. So what it will look like, I think more on a macro level is that you're going to start seeing people now just roll, fall off the rolls of being able to have care um, with direct access with individuals who are, you know, so Medicaid as an example, those rules got loosened. A lot of people are able to get access to Medicaid because of meeting the criteria of the sort of COVID temporary rules. Now they will no longer have access. The thing is with people though, we continue to get sick. So really what that starts looking like is sort of the preventative care um, that was able, that people are able to get to now becomes harder to access. Um, you know, less providers will be willing to take you if you don't have a payer source. So you're generally going to allow people that, you know, maybe can have issues managing a, a primary care setting, an urgent care center, or a physician office now showing up in ERs. So we'll have sort of macro level impacts in healthcare, you know, very similar to sort of what we see pre-ACA, post-ACA, 
out states that are not expanding Medicaid. There, there are too many people coming into the health system at a point of high expense. Emergency rooms are really, really expensive to run. Um, and payments for those services are very minimal, especially if there's no payment if you're coming in and you're an uninsured individual. So I think on a macro level, places like um, hospital systems, especially those in sort of those distressed areas we already talked, spoke about, rural areas and sort of those blighted urban areas will be struggling more because they, again, with those individuals coming in and accessing care, there was payments. Now the, 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 those payments will be less and those systems will be squeezed to continue to provide those services at a higher cost. So the, the multiplier of that is I, I know everyone's heard about the staffing issues that hospitals in particular are having. The cost of nursing, the cost of staff in hospitals now has really gone through the roof, starting to normalize a bit, but I don't think it's going to get back to a place of sort of pre-COVID time. I just don't think that's going to happen. At least it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, so you have a increased cost of providing services and a lower um, revenue threshold for, for individuals coming in to get care. So that's just causing more squeeze in hospital systems in particular um, that will continue to add pressure for more transactions, I believe, and we'll see more hospital closures as that squeeze gets untenable for some of those smaller facilities that can't, that can't manage it. So you, you mentioned the squeeze and previously um, you talked about the hospitals being bought out and uh, more hospitals closing. And I've noticed in the rural areas, the crisis of hospital closings is really critical. Like mm -hmm. there are some mm -hmm. areas where patients have to travel maybe up to 250 miles to get to a fully staffed yes. hospital. So speak about that a little bit. Speak about the challenges of providing healthcare in a rural context. Yeah, healthcare in rural America is it's very hard. Um, there's like a people issue. You know, it, it's similar to like any other industry. When you go into rural areas, that we still see that individuals are leaving. Right, that it, many rural areas now they're not growing in population. People aren't staying there to raise their children. If they have opportunities outside, they go take them, maybe either through education or other means, and they're not coming back. So those areas are already just sort of getting smaller. When you think about staffing a hospital, hospitals are very complex to staff. You know, I think when we look at sometimes the way the media portrays it, it's like we have a building, we put people in it to work, and then people come and get care. These are very highly specialized, highly trained individuals working in hospitals. When you think about the level of nursing, not every nurse can work in every area of a hospital. A nurse in an ICU who's working and managing a ventilator very, very different skill than a nurse that is managing um, obstetrics and someone giving birth, very different than a nurse that's managing in the ED triaging patients that are coming in with some, you know, critical, um, you know, uh, broken legs or, you know, the, they're, they're, all these different skills require individual specialized training. So being able to have all those different specialties at scale at a hospital with lower volume of patients is very, very challenging to, to manage. From again, just from a basic sort of supply and demand, right? From that perspective. So let, let me talk about maybe one example that I think people can understand from the obstetrics perspective. Everywhere you go in this country, people have to give birth. That's just that's just natural, regardless of whether you live in the community, just driving through the community. You know, as a mom myself, I have three children. Being able to drive through the country, knowing that I can go to the closest hospital in case something happens, in case I were to go into labor, um, is a really critical and important thing. 
There are laws passed. EMTALA is a law that requires every hospital to be able to provide emergency medical treatment to women in active labor. So birthing is a really important thing. The challenge, however, is to maintain your um, specialization and your sharpness in that area of medical practice as a physician, as a nurse, takes practice, right? You have to have a certain volume of people to be able to be really proficient in your skill. So if you don't have a certain volume, your skill could lessen. Um, and it also can be a place where you're providing maybe not as sharp care as you want to, or the other often more likely uh, scenario is that you, it's very hard to find doctors that want to live in that area. So, because if you've had kids or you've known anyone who had kids, kids aren't born on a timeline. It's a sort of 24 hour job. If you're working at a hospital and you're delivering babies, um, when do you sleep if you're the sole provider, right? Mm -hmm. Is it mm -hmm. enough babies? Are there enough babies being born to allow for the finances to work for two providers or three providers to be there? So no one is on 24 hours. So it, it becomes, a, it becomes just like everything else when you're trying to staff a service you know, it becomes very, very challenging for that service in particular to be fully staffed in areas where there are low volumes of people, low volumes of births, and, um, you know, but still having having that need. So the, the more people leave those areas, the more the populations decline, the harder it is to find that right level of specialization and the right volume to make it a real good, viable from a business perspective. Is Does that make sense? Is yeah. it me, Michelle, or do we, do, does it sound like we're going back to the one world doctor in the community, you know, where he's, he's on a, you know, on horseback going, going from one home it, to another it, on a, on a It feels board. that way sometimes. So the, the other challenge in that is that, so now we have lots of technology. There are a lot of things that physicians can do through technology that they could not do before. But then going into the rural areas, you also have challenges with technology. You know, you and I sitting in major cities can think about, well, I have, we're on, we're on a Zoom call. I can easily get connected to you in real time. Right. That is not necessarily the same experience of our brothers and sisters living in rural America. Mm -hmm. The broadband that we have is fast and reliable, and that's not the same necessarily for across the country. So you'll see there's lots of talk in the legislature, but this is not the kind of stuff that gets, you know, the sexy uh, excitement going on in D.C., but there has been for years plans and and different politicking to be able to try to get rural ears the right level of broadband so that things like healthcare, um, so that maybe if we have a doctor that can be here for a certain amount of time, a midwife, midwife for another, they can be taking care of a larger span of area, seeing regular visits through technology, perhaps. Right? I, I live in Nashville. I know that Vanderbilt has started providing a lot of your just well visits as you work through um, your, your prenatal stage virtually. I would have loved to do that. <laughs> As a busy working mom, being able to just do my well visits virtually would have been fantastic. So imagine if we can bring some of that technology into rural areas, it can be a great help. But again, the technology and the infrastructure has to catch up to, to allow it to happen. So in many of the indigenous communities, they don't even have internet. So That's exactly that, right. that, that uh, showed to be a huge problem during COVID because it caused great problems for their kids uh, to be able to be educated. And uh, I know even here, I'm just telling the truth, um, not too far from DC in Maryland, there are some areas where uh, the kids, they wired up a school bus and the kids would get on the school bus in order to do their homework because they didn't have 
uh, internet in their mm-hmm. homes. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the McDonald's, I forgot what city that was, but the McDonald's parking lot became uh, a hot mm-hmm. spot. You know, and that's interesting, Michelle, because yeah. if you yeah. recall uh, when we did our episode with uh, with uh, the Native American pediatrician, yeah. she talked about that in her community, the uh, most reliable Internet service was at the jail. Right. <laughs> so people literally would have to go park by the park jail by. Mm-hmm. to use and tap into their Internet. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I can see how in the rural areas that that's a tremendous hurdle. Uh, have to be uh, uh, overcome in some kind of way. And then, you know, I guess it ties in with the high levels of Black um, maternal mortality that we might see in the rural areas. Do you you see that as well? Well, so the generally the locations that many of the hospitals that I have had the pleasure of supporting are honestly not very diverse communities. Some of them in the West do have indigenous populations and some Hispanic population. In the Southeast, there there was more diversity, especially within Black populations. But even those hospitals, as I think about our organization, those have been divested most recently. Um, One in Selma, Alabama, one in um, Columbus, Georgia, um, and moved into another organization that would be better uh, suited to serve them. So when you see talk of just maternal health care in general, I, I think about one of my friends, Dr. Joy Creer, who was another Princeton grad as well. She's got some great programs in maternal um, health, especially in the Black communities. I think what I see from a, a general perspective, maybe not along the assigned lines of race, just because the populations we generally tend to serve are not exceptionally, exceptionally diverse, is that if you're in a community that is already sort of underserved because of class, right, many poor populations of individuals, if you also add some other otherness on top of it, it is very easy to get lost, right? Very easy to get uh, forgotten or for stereotypes to stick with you, regardless of sort of who you are as a, a whole a whole person. So where our organization has, you know, again, like these organizations I've represented previously is to try to bring awareness to that. In spaces that are challenging to bring awareness, when your your staff is not diverse, right? When the ear you live in is not very very diverse, it becomes um, an issue of well, who who's being impacted? Are we managing resources for these small small really small subpopulations, or are we managing resources for the whole? Can we think about the whole in a way that actually then also serves these small smaller populations? I don't know if it, I feel like it is a it's almost like a riddle that is so so hard to solve because people have to come to terms with their the way they look at people for their otherness right and I, as we think about sort of the time of covid and all the racial reckoning that was happening we started to unlock it a bit people started to pay attention a little bit more and and read and educate themselves hopefully many people are using your podcast to be able to do that but I think as we start, as fur- we get further away, I do see folks sort of either going all in and learning or it going back to some normalcy in the way that we we thought about these things before. The otherness starts mattering less in the eyes of the people that really need to understand it in order to make and effectuate change. So tell us a little bit about LifePoint Health. You know, there are so many different healthcare groups out there. It's really confusing uh, for people that are trying to find something that works for them. 
So tell us a little bit about LifePoint. I will. And, and actually, I am between roles now. I recently left LifePoint in June and was the chief compliance officer there. And I'll actually be starting a new role at Prime Therapeutic, which is a pharmacy benefit management company that has operations uh, across the country. But I think for this conversation, this sort of experience at LifePoint and at also community health systems where I worked previously um, is, is, is helpful. LifePoint and community health systems and HCA, Tenet, right? All of these very large for-profit health systems across our country. Essentially what they do is they provide um, a full spectrum of healthcare services in varying communities. For LifePoint and community health systems, their markets are more of our rural community markets. HCA and Tenet, some others, their markets tend to be a little bit more suburban rural markets. But the models are, are similar. You take the aggregation of certain services like legal services, the legal services that get provided across those organizations look very, very similar. So if you can combine many, many hospitals into one umbrella and provide um, high level back office services at a lesser cost, right? Cheaper legal care or cheaper legal services, cheaper accounting services, um, your treasury services, all those things that you need in order to make a business run and function. If you can consolidate those into um, a smaller central office, then you can provide more bandwidth out to more facilities. And also by standardizing certain procedures, um, you know, managing um, managing functions in the way that you can, you build some expertise across how things work. You can sort of get to scale and provide the high level and high cost oversight lawyers, accountants, those folks are not cheap professionals, but if you can provide them at a high level at a lesser cost, it's 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 generally, I think, good for systems that are smaller coming to join a larger one to to keep one to stay open, but also to provide high level, high level services. Um, those organizations are similar to from my experience, but have a slightly different sort of, I guess, game plan operations philosophy, the large not-for-profit hospitals. The largest health systems in America are not-for-profit systems, some of them faith-based systems. Um, the difference between the for-profit and not-for-profit, obviously one is tax, one is not. So, you know, working on the for-profit side, what they would say is we're paying revenue into the community that's helping to sustain the community, right? Many of the communities that those uh, hospitals operate in are the largest employers in their community. The other side of it, right, from a not-for-profit perspective, you can set a different mission. You can set, a, you have to set a mission that has a charitable purpose. Um, the way that you spend your money is much more highly regulated from a tax-exempt perspective, but their operations models generally are not very, not very different. The, you know, the, the CEOs of the heads of those organizations are still making lots of money. Like it, it, it's not as though, right, the CEOs of the not-for-profit systems are not also millionaires, right? It's, it's, it's 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 the way of corporate way of corporate America, but the way that they're structured and the way that um, dollars get paid has to look a little bit different. Um, so I'm going to jump in and ask a question that was not on our list, and um, if you don't want to answer, if you want to pass on it, that's that's fine. Yeah. But I'm wondering um, whether, mm -hmm. as part of the reparations discussion, mm -hmm. um, that the for profit healthcare systems, which may or may not have as diverse <laughs> uh, an environment that they're working in, should actually participate in funding uh, those hospitals where 
the pressure is tight because they don't have the type of revenue needed to um, to help provide the care that's necessary for for that area. So um, I, I don't know if it's anything that you've ever thought about, but it, as part of reparations, I think yeah. we need to think more broadly about what reparations should look like and who can participate in uh, making that happen. So what, what what's your at least initial thoughts on that? I love that question. I'm happy to jump into it. I don't think it's a distinction between for-profit and not-for-profit though. And I think this is, again, having worked in healthcare for a very long time, just because something is not for profit doesn't mean it's not making a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? The Mayo Clinic is not for profit. It makes a lot of money, true, true. right? The, big, the biggest healthcare systems in our country are not for profit. They're making a lot of money. So that being said, healthcare in itself, though, is, a, is, is complex in how it gets paid. Some things make money and some things don't. The ones that are successful have find the right balance between what makes money and what doesn't make money. Unfortunately, the things that are the ones that are really needed, the preventative services, um, the you've been burned in a fire. Those services are so expensive to provide, but are not the ones that pay very well. So you have to perform your, you know, your boob surgeries, your hip replacements in order to, to offset and really make the system work. So the way I would think of it from a reparations perspective, and, you know, and from my perspective, I think all corporations, not, not for profit, for, I think every corporation has to have some sort of skin in the game um, with respect to how you are able to find money because it's it's real you have to find money someplace to be able to pay the debts that are owed to you know black and brown people in the United States um the what beautiful thing around about America is that we write our history down a lot and you can trace things back and find sort of the, their causal connections if you want to and assign some level of responsibility. I think that's a harder way to go about reparations, maybe, but it's probably a way that people can like with their minds think, okay, this is the company that we're talking about now. If we trace it back, here's how they get causally connected to um, either enslavement or benefiting from ser servitude and, and a whole host of other things. I think it has to be a, sort of an all-in reckoning. Everyone right here today has to sort of be all in and understand that a reckoning has to happen. And everyone, everything is going to have to contribute into that reckoning for it to really work. Because I what we also see in America is that we like to point fingers. What was them? It wasn't me, right? You know, racism exists, but exists out there, not in my company, right? That's that's how generally people think. People get very, very comfortable um, showing you the videos of racism happening and saying, wow, I can't believe that ever happens when it happens sort of in the spaces that you're living in as well. So I think we have to sort of put that aside and just every, you know, figure out what the right formula is for everything to have to pay into reparations if it's going to work from a financial perspective, right? So I have been paying a little bit of attention to what's happening in California. It is really bold, right? When you think about the dollar figures that they're looking at, I'm even wondering, I am in support of reparations. Having been an immigrant, I wouldn't be, I don't think I'd be a person necessarily eligible for American reparations, not to say that my family didn't go through the same experiences in the coming to the Caribbean, but my children would, their dad is American. So you think about the dollars that have to go in to really start, not, I don't think you ever make anything whole, but to start to truly repair and recognize fault and move forward. I think it has to be all in. So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but. Yeah, it's a good attempt. And I'm just wondering, um, 
from the healthcare industry. Uh, yeah, what would that look like? You know, but think about the ways that racism has impacted within the right. So many of the 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 medical technologies that we're really comfortable with today were because they were being experimented on on black and brown people, especially black women. Yes, right, the the whole. Right, the whole um, science of obstetrics was all about doctors. We can't really call them doctors. People experimenting on enslaved women in a way that was just brutal and uh, and horrific when you think about it. So, you know, with the, with all of what black bodies and brown bodies have been through in order to make our health system what it is today, um, I don't know. It seems like the healthcare system would have to contribute in some shape or form. Um, there are many, many places where we couldn't go and get care, right? You couldn't, you couldn't get care. Even if you lived close, even if you worked within the facility, you, your family couldn't get care in these places. So I, I would be, um, I don't know, you know, the 1619 project, I think helped many people to see that there really isn't an industry within America that has not been benefited by enslavement in some, in some shape or form. Which is precisely why they want to change our history. Right, right. Well, yes. Or, or, or conceal it, right? Yeah. Conceal it, yes. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, when I'm not doing law and healthcare, my passion and my volunteer work is in education, especially with my children's schools and making sure that we are not concealing history. But I live in Tennessee. Tennessee was the first state to pass those anti CRT laws that are now being spread across mm -hmm. all Republican right, state right, right. houses. Mm -hmm. So we got a, got a long battle ahead of us. Mm. Yeah, but you got some elected people there who are uh, the justice. Hard up. They are. <laughs> yeah. They have a hard. There's it's a hard, rough battle though. Yeah, right? the two, I know, the I know two young. Making, yeah, the two young brothers. Uh, they were very, yes. um, very eloquent. They represent their constituents very, very well, and I think are bringing some um, power into the state for younger voters in particular and voters of color. But it's still Tennessee, and it's it's yeah. a system that has been. Um, gerrymandered its way into a very, very large supermajority of Republican-run spaces that today, I don't just don't think are even thinking about politics. It's 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 less about politics and, and doctrine and policy. It's more about, um, I don't know, really, again, anti, anti-everything, anti-woman, anti-LGBTQ, anti-Black. So it will, it's, it's a long road ahead. Yeah. I have I have a question um, more revolve around where do you think we are now today in the healthcare industry after we had the onset of the initial impact of COVID and now that we're approaching uh, the flu season again there's a new strain of COVID out there that people mm -hmm. are um, worried about as a matter of fact there's a new uh, booster shot that's probably going to come out at the end of the month. Are our healthcare communities ready for this, you know, what could be another uh, impactful uh, hit of the virus in our communities, especially our black and brown communities? Yeah, are they ready? I think they're as ready as they're going to be. But, you know, we talked a little bit about the stressors in the healthcare systems already. Those still exist. Um, healthcare workers are really burnt out right now. That's just a real thing. They're They're human people. They've been through a lot. They went from being heroes to being villains. It's a really, it's a rough, it's a rough place to work. Think similar to education right now. They're really tough places to work. We need and respect our educators and our healthcare providers so much, but um, we also expect them to, I think, be superhuman. So I think there are going to be challenges again about around staffing, around access, you know, whether or not these vaccines remain free. 
that, you know, that's another question that hasn't yet been answered. I don't believe, I think thus far, they, there isn't any indication that they won't be free, but at some point in time, you know, who knows how that, how that changes and how that then impacts being able to access vaccines and, and drugs that are, that are being used to, to help people with, with COVID. So I, you know, I am, I'll be reluctantly optimistic. <laughs> I think the strains on our healthcare system have not yet been repaired. And I don't think it's going to be repaired anytime soon. Um, COVID was an accelerant. There was already a shortage of nurses, already a high shortage of a lot of primary care physicians and then other practitioners that just take care of our day-to-day needs. They were already in sort of really short demand before we hit COVID. COVID just accelerated. It caused people that were close to retirement to retire and say, I'm done. This is too much. Um, but on the bright side, it also spurned a lot of people to say, wow, this is a place of, 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 of working professionally. That is um, a place that I know I can have real impact. So I do think levels of, now, you know, so sort of admittance into school is, are starting to rise slowly, but we are so far behind in sort of how many we need that it's going to be a challenge. Um, what we will start seeing, I know likely you've all already seen the, again, I'm an immigrant, the influx of immigrant physicians, right, in our hospitals ac- across the country, you will start seeing an influx of immigrant nurses as well and other sort of technicians in our hospitals to help us bridge the gap between what we need to take care of our population and what we current currently have. So there's still some evolution and changes that will continue in our healthcare systems. The more taxed, sort of the more pressure it stays under, um, the harder it's going to be to sort of recover it. Um, and in, from my perspective, when I think about what really need, we probably need a, a real sort of reform in how healthcare is delivered and how healthcare is paid for in order for us to sort of not be in this sort of constant lag in this extreme place of pressure. Healthcare is very, very expensive in the US, very, very expensive. Um, and we need to figure out ways to sort of rein in costs while not limiting access to people. And I don't think, you know, the, the reforms that have been done are, again, trying to get us closer, at least by making access better. But I'm not sure yet we've yet got, I, actually, I know we haven't not yet got the, the cost management piece of healthcare under control. Usually when we hear that phrase, cost management, <laughs> it yeah. normally ends up with someone losing services. I mean, that's just the... Because right, we, we have to think differently about how we fix it, right? And so if it's only going to be expense cutting... And like the fraud and abuse, the, the way the government uses their their rules are to penalize providers for providing care by not dotting I's and crossing T's, right? And so that also adds more expense. That's why there's so many lawyers in healthcare, right? So here we add there there there's a way I think to simplify our healthcare, to simplify the rules that need to be followed, to to lead less people like me to help us interpret those rules, to be able to get that money more into the the care that's needed. And we probably also need to right size what are the right salaries for healthcare providers. You know, right now, when you look at your highest paid physicians, um, dermatology is one of them. I I love my dermatologist. Let me tell you, my skin doesn't look this youthful just by my own, (laughs) my own routine, but they're probably some of the highest paid providers right now. Um, When your primary care doctor and your pediatrician, your obstetrics are likely more needed for us to have full and healthy lives. Which so we, is precisely have- why my face looks the way that it looks. 
<laughs> I know. Because I ain't angle, spending a dime you, on a dermatologist, okay? You look very youthful. You yeah, well, very that's uh, uh, very kind of you, but uh, you haven't but you seen know, me up close. That, that's also reflective of the education salaries too, right? Yes, the, the most yes. important people are the primary school, you know, teachers and high school, and they get paid the least out of everybody. So that and we expect them also to do a lot for our kids, right? We send right. our kids to school and we expect a whole host of things to happen and get managed by professionals that are trained to do one specific thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, again, that's what those two industries have always are near and dear to me. I, I love them both because they're so flawed. <laughs> and I do think we <laughs> We need people to really start pushing and pressing to be able to get them to better because we can do it better. We, we know we can do it better. We don't have to start from scratch. There are models in other places that are also doing it better. Mm. And when I mean better, I mean less cost and better outcomes in both spaces, education and healthcare. But we have to sort of get out of our own way to be able to take the politics out of those conversations and really get to the heart of the people in those conversations, I think, to get to a better place. So, you know, as usual, we are miraculously at the end <laughs> you know how does that keep happening um, so but we we do like to um ask our guests to give a sort of a wrap up what's the one thing if there's only one thing that our listeners can take away from hearing you today what what does that have to be i think the one thing i want listeners to understand is to ask more questions ask questions of your providers Ask questions about your pharmacist. If you can, start understanding how your healthcare is paid for. So I think if people can better understand how their healthcare is paid for, they can become better consumers and better advocates and hopefully will also be better in how they vote. That right now, the way our healthcare system is managed because it is primarily funded by the government, the policies driven there are driving most of the healthcare systems. Even if you're even if you're not reliant on Medicare or Medicaid, you have private insurance. A lot of what the, the again, the major driver of payment is coming from the government. So it's driving a lot of the, the policy and how things are, are done. So voting and making sure that you're tuned to what your representatives think about health care. Like, it, it, you know, regardless of if you're a Republican or Democrat, I live in a Republican state. I generally vote Democratic, but when you start listening to the leaders in the state that I live, where the um the where the economy is driven by healthcare, Tennessee is a, a a state where I think a third of the hospital beds across the country are run out of Middle Tennessee. So a lot of healthcare is managed and driven in Tennessee. But we haven't expanded Medicaid. We haven't mm -hmm. expanded Medicaid because it's a political battle. Right. That means that Tennesseans are going to be on the lowest rungs for health care and health outcomes in the country, right? So we, we got to sort of, you got to understand that as a consumer of health care and understand how your representatives vote directly impact you and your ability to get health care and impact your children and your grandparents' ability to have health care. So if nothing else, it's a, a call to go to the polls and really pay attention to your your healthcare and and how it works. It is very very complicated, I know, but that those are the questions you should be asking of your representatives. Healthcare and education are the two, I think, key key issues right now. That's uh, that is a fantastic way to finish, Tizel, especially yeah. as we're preparing for another very important uh, election coming up in the fall. Uh, people really need to understand that you know, your health care is going to be determined by how your politicians vote. 
Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, we've learned, um, as I said, we at the beginning, we've done a lot of shows on healthcare, uh, but we really haven't talked about the intersection that, you know, your background uh, covers. And so I, I think our listeners have uh, really benefited from the talk this afternoon. Definitely. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed participating with you today. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> um, I, think, <laughs> I think it's important that she made the point that, um, because it, it, it's a good point to make, that it's not just corporate hospital management that's looking at the bottom line, but also mm -hmm. many of the nonprofit hospitals as well, mm -hmm. uh, because they distinguish themselves from uh, charity hospitals, where, mm -hmm. the, where the delivery of services is the most important thing as opposed to the bottom line. But, you know, it's a complex issue and something that we need to keep looking at. Uh, and I'm hoping that these hospital institutions are thinking about the reparations issue. Well, I don't know whether they're thinking about that or not, but I think what we as a community need to remind ourselves is that voting is important. She did talk yeah. about the education of the issues, and the only way we get educated about these issues is if we do our own homework and research and then uh, take that to the polls when we decide who are the, our representatives going to be, uh, especially uh, uh, for something as important as uh, our overall health care? Right. In today's time, you know, that, that, that statement applies to almost every aspect of, of the, the condition and lives of our community. You have to pay attention. You have to know who you're voting for mm -hmm. and be an educated Amen. so that we can all survive this. Amen. Well, if you liked what you heard today, please visit our website at www.nubiantigerspodcast.com where we post all episodes and a resource page with additional information on every podcast subject. You can also find us on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our other social media is on Mastodon where our handle is at Nubian Tigers podcast at blacktwitter.io. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor M, which is now part of Spotify. But if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Look for Nubian Tigers Talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.